Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Petros Podcast. As you can as you can see, this is a, a well, actually, it's not, I'm sorry. Welcome to the Petro Nerds Crude Life Mashup Podcast, um, which is probably going to go in a couple different directions of both uh, for, for Jason's podcast and my own and probably be posted on both. Um, but sorry, I, I, I stole the opening there. Uh, for Petro Nerds, this is episode 52, and it's clearly not taking place um, in my normal studio and dining room table. So, uh, Jason, where are you at? I am right in front of the Silver Dollar Saloon in Lakes Country, USA, in Minnesota. I'm stealing their Wi-Fi because uh, the place that I'm at has no Wi-Fi at all. So I'm uh, basically using a lot of modern amenities to do a remote office location. Yeah, yeah same, same here. I'm in, in my F-150. Where are you at? Um, sitting- I'm in Craig, Colorado, where my where my oh, folks nice. are at, um, stealing as much of their uh, new Starlink uh, internet. So I think when this goes out, it's because I can see I have one bar here, and it's because the satellite is roaming around. And I just put on the hat for kicks and giggles since I'm home, and I I don't get to do this, uh, you know, I don't get to do this at my dining room table. So um, yeah, I'm really pleased to do this mashup, and it's uh, you know it's. We've I've been on the Crude Life podcast before, but not exactly with you. So super pumped for this. Well, I thank you very much for joining the Crude Life here. And uh, folks, we're coming to you from Elizabeth, Minnesota. Look at that right outside of Lakes Country, USA. And we are joined here with Trisha Curtis on the cross promotional podcast. That's what we call them here at the Crude Life. And you call them the mashup. I love how everybody's got their own different terminologies because that's exactly the way the world works is we all have purpose we all have our own direction but in the end we seem to be going the same direction and right now trisha curtis is in craig colorado jason Spees is in elizabeth minnesota right outside of fergus falls minnesota we're both using modern technologies that really bring all the above energy together and honestly, we can talk about all the above energy and we can talk about all the different components that oil and gas bring to the table. But for me, I'm mostly doing it because gas prices are like 17 bucks a gallon and I can't go anywhere else. So, I mean, I, I got to steal internet from the Silver Dollar Saloon here. So what's going on in your gas world? I mean, this could be the most expensive podcast I've done, given that I'm sitting in my truck and I have to have it on with the air conditioning or I'd be melting in here. Because when we, we first logged on, I was sweating with the truck off. So the truck is on. I so it could be a little, little expensive because we're, 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 nor- we're north of $5 a gallon. And if you hear my dad, he's on the four-wheeler in the back. So um, in, in the back in the background. And I've I've instructed the family not to not to interrupt why I'm in the truck. So, But that'll probably happen anyways. But yeah, I mean, so it is... Uh, it is Thursday, July 7th, 2022, and we are seeing some weird, I mean, oil prices are 102.71 for WTI, 104.66 for Brent, and net gas has come up um, a bit. We're nor- we're over six bucks. We're at 628. Uh, but Boris Johnson has resigned as prime minister. He's still the prime minister right now uh, of the UK, but he is, he's off. Um, and yeah, I, I came home and was talking shop with China and UK and energy crises and economy um, on my way home yesterday when I got home and talking with my folks so yeah there's a lot of we there's a lot of angles we can take this all of the above um but i'm i'm game to take this in any direction you want to jason well for me the thing that worries me the most is that uh oil and uh, oil prices dip below a hundred dollars and that's kind of a magic number for uh either retiring rigs or just having conversations about whether we're going to do these rigs or not it seems to be uh, a magic number a hundred dollars so i one or two days, a dip below whatever it was uh, recently in the last week. So there's that part that that worries me a little bit as far as the employment part. But mostly, honestly, it's the independent contractors with the gas prices that really have has my heartstrings pulling the most right now because a lot of the truckers that I've been talking to, a lot of the hotshot drivers, a lot of the deadhead drivers, as they're called in different industries, uh, you know, you can't keep pumping $600 to $1,000 in the tank every day and expect to eat that. And so 
is that going to mean that we're going to pass that cost on to more consumers? So are we going to have another round of inflation coming? Because a lot of people did their contracts in the beginning of the year and the, and the gas price increase didn't come till March. So there's a lot of companies that have been eating their prices for three, four months. They haven't even, they haven't even put those costs onto the consumer yet. Do you, do you know what I mean? Do you understand what I'm talking absolutely, about? Absolutely. No, I think I think that um, so the, there's a few things, I think, with this sort of hundred dollar oil and this dip below. So I recorded a podcast earlier this week. And so on Tuesday, you know, right, you know, July 5th, right after the 4th of July, we did see I did see 97 and change. WTI hit 97 and change. And okay, I mean, it did I, happen. I, <laughs> it did happen. So so yeah. I would stress to people that and I try to post this on LinkedIn and, and Twitter and various things on recession is really what's dragging down oil prices is not so much the fundamentals. It's really about these fears of recession. And the, these fears of recession are, are so much more than just fears. It's a reality of that, you know, that folks are are getting hit really hard. So Target and Walmart have come out with additional warnings in addition to their previous earnings calls. But Dollar Tree stock is surging because this is a recession stock and that's, that's what happens. Um, and so when oil prices dip below 90, you know, $100 a barrel, the problem with that is, is that one, it's still incredibly high. So I'm not really worried about oil producers and a slowdown and even independence. I do think, you know, there's a there is a trickiness on the service sector side and with with passing along costs to et cetera and increasing those costs and make sure the service sector is healthy uh, from an oil industry standpoint. And I definitely want to get into oil or service sector stuff. But separate from that, it's really that we still have very, very high prices. So yes, uh, you know, it offers the administration. I think I even saw something from the Biden administration. They seem to be taking credit for this, that the Biden administration is doing everything in their power to lower gasoline prices. Oh, and lo and behold, they've come down. This has nothing to do with the administration, has nothing to really do with fundamentals. This is about fear of the economy coming down. And that's what's sort of weighing on oil prices. But they're still ridiculously high. And the problem is, unless if you just had $100 oil prices, and you had mostly, uh, you know, inflation come down on everything else, yeah, we could all survive it. But the problem is, is this is what you'd call stagflation or, or sticky inflation is that you have $100 oil prices and you have very high everything prices and extreme. I mean, the grocery store is just killer. I mean, to I, I bought a rotisserie chicken and some vegetables for my family. And it was like, you know, we're, we're talking like 50 bucks for for um, for dinner. And that that's just I think that that's the pieces that's really high is that grocery prices and and energy prices of filling, you, you know, your truck and filling your tank. That's what's killing everyone. And so that's the piece that people realize what's pulling down the economy. Yeah, you can watch the stock market all day long, but it is the it is being able to fill up your vehicle and drive around. And by the way, that doesn't go away. I mean, when you look at oil demand and you look at what happens in recessions, it's not gasoline demand that drops off a cliff in the US. It is uh, jet fuel and it is uh, and it is diesel. It's when the economy slows, you stop building stuff, you stop putting stuff on train cars because you stop buying stuff. You stop, you know, the big trucks stop driving around moving all the Amazon packages because we stop. Uh, we have less discretionary income and we stop flying as much because if you've tried to book a flight recently, I mean, you're looking. I, I would try to book a flight to to see a client and it's we're talking minimum a thousand bucks, eight hundred to a thousand dollars for for economy class airfare, and that's really at a level that I think is. I mean, that's just hard for people. So I think the average person is going to say, no, I don't need to, you know, if that's discretionary, no, I don't need to go on that trip. And then it's, do I drive or, 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 or not? And maybe it's, I just don't see my family for a while or I don't do whatever. So I think this world is in for a, a, a pretty decent awakening when school starts and we have back to school sort of in, in late August and September. And yes, it may t- take a little more time to trickle in, but we're sort of in, in the recession woes now. So $100 oil doesn't scare me for the drilling side. It scares me for the, the, the consumer that it's sticky. I chuckle because I was just having the conversation with a former colleague of mine in the media. And I said, because uh, he was talking about, you know, work at double time and all these different things. And I said, hey, man, remember the one thing about the radio industry is they spent a lot of money trying to determine the behaviors of people. And the one thing that they found out is they found out Christmas time and they found out summertime. Beyond that, it's all a hodgepodge, but they know people spend a lot of money at Christmas time. And they also know that July is a throwaway month that you can be as Absolutely. loud as you've been. One, you can 100%. spend as much because once August rolls around, the focus comes back to school. And so if you look at the radio industry and television, everybody takes their vacations in July because that's when you bring in the B squad. That's when you do the training. That's when you try new things. Nobody's working that's right now. hundred percent. And because if it, and also if anybody's listening, they're not really listening because they're preparing. 
They're preparing and preparing. You know what I mean? Like even the people who are working their tail off right now, they're working two, three times as hard because everybody else is not working. And so you're, unfortunately, if you're working hard, you're kind of swimming against the current right now. So that's an unfortunate thing. But that doesn't mean you're swimming behind. It doesn't mean you're getting behind. Because once people start focusing again this, this fall, those people who are listening to podcasts like the Petro Nerds, listening to the Crude Life, throw out a few things every now and then, you'll be prepared. Because it is going to happen. I mean, the other thing is I was talking to some builders. They haven't even seen nail prices come down yet. Steel prices haven't started. So when you start talking about gas prices, you start talking about um, uh, uh, lumber prices, those are the roots of economies. And until those prices stop, the food prices aren't going to stop. All, food is now dependent on all those things now. It didn't used to be, yeah, the, but that's when pe- people no, had a garden the, in their backyard. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, and you're seeing you're seeing stuff like that pick up, but I think the gar- I mean, I think the war in Ukraine is. Uh, I mean, the Russia Ukraine situation, and and we should t- you know touch on the China stuff a bit, but I mean it's it's the prolongness of it. It's not just you know. I mean, yes, we have metals that we're not getting out. We have tons of grain that we're not getting out. But I think I think what people aren't seeing from a global recession standpoint and is is a food crisis. I mean, we have many African nations, many Middle East countries that aren't being able to access food with soaring fertilizer prices um, because of soaring energy prices and soaring food prices. And this is a really, really serious thing. I mean, we had food inflation in the U.S. And I know a lot of folks don't probably appreciate this, but when we were leading inflation in the U.S., part of that was because um, entitlement programs had been expanded. So we had a lot of fiscal lags happening. And so people were able to spend more money on, on different things and food and everything. But food stamp I believe the food stamp program has increased. Um, it's the biggest it's ever been. So we ha- we expanded that significantly. And that's great in some ways because people have access to, to food. But the problem was when we w- did it by such an expansionary level, it did contribute to inflation and food inflation in the U.S. So we started experiencing food inflation actually in the U.S. prior to the war in Ukraine, prior to actually grain sort of coming off. And then it's sort of, you know, now it's sort of lit on fire and gone crazy with obviously the war in Ukraine. So there's a lot of things that are as- exacerbating this. And I would say we're seeing this... Um, France has done has lower inflation than other parts of Europe, but that's because they have they have not allowed the inflationary stuff to get in you know, passed along to the consumer to doing some, uh, you know, special uh, travel holidays over the summer. So people aren't seeing the real data to your point of this July is that, I mean, in France, they have a special nine euro, it's cost nine euros for like an all month train package. So the trains are packed, but everyone's using them because it only costs nine euro as opposed to driving or doing other things. And it's very, it's very inexpensive to do it. So you're just seeing some artificial levels of that, that aren't reflecting reality, I think, and how people are spending and how people are behaving. And things are just really going to come home to root boost when August and September happens. But to your point on housing, I think, yeah, lumber, nails, I mean, we did see pressure on copper. We're seeing a little pressure on these things, but they have to really come down to sort of invigorate the economy. And that's why I say when when people don't realize that lower oil prices do a lot for the economy, they actually help, you know, they help spur and and get the economy going, but you have to have everything else sort of come in line. And I think this, the housing side is something that hasn't quite caught up. And when we see housing data, everybody interprets it 80 ways to Sunday. But the reality is, yes, we had a housing shortage. However, and not everyone has to live in a home that they own. Um, you can live in homes that you rent and rental prices we are seeing in some areas actually come down a little bit. Um, and then we have all these new builds, you know, existing home sales are one thing, but when new builds, and I don't know about where what you're seeing um, where you're sitting, but I mean, in Denver, the new builds, everyone's building a new house. So they're all about to come on the market. And the, you know, Jerome Powell, you know, chairman of the Federal Reserve actually mentioned that when he closed out his, his talk um, a few weeks ago was, hey, you know, new builds are coming online. And that's going to put some pressure on the market when you have a slug of new builds come on, especially if the timing is, hey, the economy is slide, backsliding. And that's the stuff that people don't realize of, no, it's, it's not the straw that'll break the camel's back, but there's a bit of contagion risk and fear and, you know, how people gauge the markets and sentiment. And I, I think there's just so many, I actually call them gray swans. I don't think they're black anymore. I mean, there's just a, a million gray swans sort of swimming in the water. We can see all of them. And it's just going to take one to sort of come a little closer. Um, but these are all, you know, significant elements and housing is certainly one of them and your lumber and you know, nail prices are, are a component of that. Yeah, we've seen some decent uh, housing in terms of real estate, and it's actually pretty healthy here in the Midwest, especially in the um, tri-state area of Minnesota, North Dakota, and 
South Dakota, that's primarily my region, I guess, a little bit of uh, eastern Montana and western Wyoming. I don't claim to know those significant areas because those are uh, unique cultures in itself there, especially in uh, eastern Wyoming. Um, so w when I take a look at some of those, <laughs> yeah. Well, the Tea Party's liberal there. I mean, come on, you know. I mean, these. <laughs> well, Eastern, I was going to say, if you're talking, yeah, yeah. You know, Lusk area, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very. I, I love that. That's God's country there because it's the Black Hills. It's it's Fort Guernsey. You know. Oh, well, I love. I grew. You know, I spent a lot of time growing up in the Black Hills in Wyoming. But can we pause for one second, just for Petronas podcast yeah. listeners, if they're not, if they don't know who you are, um, because I mean, you're. They, they probably do. I mean, I think a lot of folks mm. are familiar with 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 Jason's fees and and the crude life. But I'd love to, you know, if you have a thirty second, what what what? How would you describe what the crude life is? I mean, you you have so, a very <clears throat> a, a very well known podcast. You interview a lot of folks. I've been on it. Um, you have folk. Your interviews are absolutely fantastic. But I'd love to just hear, you know for our, our, my listeners and yours of, you know, tell us a little bit more about it um, and sure. you know, sort of why we're doing this. So I'm, I'm actually a uh, trained journalist. I'm actually a trained executive producer in the media. I've won awards in the newspaper industry, the magazine industry, radio industry, also the hospitality industry too. When I used to uh, run a uh, fine dining uh, and hotel. So uh, I've, I've won Awards for a lot of different uh, logistical and uh, uh, interviews and, and that sort of thing. And when the uh, Bakken boom, the shale boom happened, it was right in my backyard. And so I would have been a fool not to cover it from a journalist standpoint. So we went out there from a non-political uh, standpoint. And because there was so much uh, polarizing news going on, we said, you know what, there's so much community building going on. There's so much innovation going on. That's going to be our central core right there. So we're not going to get into the fueling of the flames and we're not going to get into a lot of polarizing politics. If people want to talk policy, they can and that sort of thing. But we're going to stick with the community building. So we are, we interviewed truck drivers, cafe owners, uh, uh, high school students, um, all kinds of different things, in addition to the oil and gas workers, too, in the supply chain and everything. So in the first year, uh, we actually had a food truck, too. So we had a food truck to go along with because we actually did our show from the food truck our first year. And ironically, in Dickinson, North Dakota, they didn't have Internet. And so we came from Fargo where we had Internet. Yucky. And yeah, I know. And so we went out there in our, you know, too big for our britches, man. So here we thought we were bragging. We we're going to do the social media. We had a Facebook page, 2012, the whole deal. We get out there, no internet. So the food truck became our social media. So it worked out great because we used to have That's people awesome. come by and yeah, it was great. So, um, the food, the, the crude life. I've been to Dickinson. Been, I've been to Dickinson. Yep. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah, and we were actually at Max, which is right next to Walmart on Highway 22, which is on the way to Kildare and, uh, and, and Wadford City and Keene and the other areas. But so uh, the crude life, what we are is, is we're a, actually a, a, a news brand for the oil and gas industry. We're, uh, we have a weekly radio show. Uh, we have a daily radio uh, update. We do uh, writing for a number of magazines and newspapers. We've been in, uh, I think, 64 magazine and newspapers. Uh, we occasionally do some behind-the-scenes news work for some uh, big-name outfits, that sort of thing. And uh, since we do it behind the scenes, we do it anonymously, and we do it primarily to keep the relationships going with some of these other area, uh, big outfits. We get paid occasionally, too, because we are trained journalists as well, but... Uh, we That's continually great. try to stay ahead of the industry and ask what's next, what's next, what's next. And honestly, that's one of the reasons why uh, we are so a fan of yours, Trisha, is because you're not afraid to ask what's next. You know, you might not even have the answer, but you're OK to throw some spaghetti up against the wall and not only say this is what this is a strand that's stuck and this stuck, but also say, look at all these ones that fell on the floor. Boy, do we screw up there. What do we learn from that screw up of piles? And that's the difference. And that's the one thing lacking right now in oil and gas, in my opinion, is there, there's too much reactive nature and not enough proactive nature. If you learn from the things that fall on the floor, then you can become ahead of the, ahead of the game. 
And so I've seen a lot of this stuff happen before because I, I heard um, the consolidation happen in agriculture. I come from an ag background. Okay. I don't come from oil and gas. I come from ag. So I, I grew up listening to the grocery store replace the farmers. I, in the same way the light switch has replaced the oil and gas worker and coal worker, the grocery store replaced the farmers in the 70s and 80s. And guess what? The big farmers got bailed out the whole time, so they kept their mouth shut. They kept their mouth shut. They got paid. They didn't care. And then they went and planted corn there, and they planted soy there because that's what the government said to do. Okay, this is exactly what's happening right now in oil and gas. There's a lot of companies that are getting paid by the government to go cap this well, cap this well, cap this well, defined as abandoned or orphan wells. Mm -hmm. It depends on which state you're in. They use them interchangeably. Last time I checked, when you cap a well, it's done. It's not producing anymore. So there's a lot of companies that are actually getting paid by the government to go out of business. That is a story nobody's talking about. We're going to no, talk it's, about it's, that this fall. It's, yeah, it's. I think it's super. It's super huge. So a few, a few things. Uh, and yeah, I, ahead, you know, I, I, I actually I just, come up from. You know me. I just keep going no, no. and going. So <laughs> absolutely, no, no, it, it's great. It's great, and it's made me think. So, um, one, I appreciate that. I appreciate the compliments because um, I, I really do appreciate it. And I, um, I come from an oil. I, I think some of my listeners may know, some don't, but I mean, I come from an oil background, third generation oil and gas. Where my, my dad and my grandfather pumped oil wells, uh, but my other grandfather, with where I'm at right now, he was a he was a dry land wheat farmer outside of Northwest Colorado, and I Ooh, mean, wheat. you can't see it around, but it's it's rolling hills, and it is um it's hard. It's I mean, was it's he not a wheat farmer in the seventies? Sort of, uh, yeah, he I mean he he's was he was multi generation. I mean he he, oh. he took his his uh walk to school as a horse soul. So it's a rough time, and so I grew up around you know w weather and wheat and commodity prices my entire life. So very very familiar with that, and I do think this um and the pumping sort of growing up around production and pumping it does infuriate me um that we this this plugging of wells and it's very big in Colorado. Um, so we we have we have stripper wells all around the entire country. And, you know, if, if people actually pull the data and actually see, you know, the proportion of wells, yes, we have, we have monster wells and we have, you know, great production in North Dakota. And, and aside from your, your big, you know, big spring dip that you guys had in April, which took production numbers down, but we have great production all over the country with these, you know, horizontal wells going gangbusters, a thousand to 3000 barrels a day when the IP, but people don't appreciate that we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of wells that are producing a handful of barrels per day. Now that may not seem like, you know, extremely important or they may not be super economic when prices are low, but by golly, they are economic now. And I think people don't appreciate that as yes, you have to have a pumper like my dad or somebody who really knows production. And part of these, these companies hired extremely young people and, and no offense to that, but I mean, we did, we saw the industry really cut back and we saw that as a, what happened in Colorado as a part of Firestone, the explosion was you had very young people that were working for these companies and, and, you know, no one said exactly what happened there, but yes, they, they had young pumpers and I would say experience matters a lot. And, and this industry doesn't do a good job of, I'd keep those old guys around as long as you can, especially in the field, because they know safety, they know production, um, and they can keep this stuff humming. And, you know, they don't go out to see a well three days a week. You know, they go out every day to make sure all those, the field is pumping and it's running. And that helps from a safety standpoint, but it helps from a production standpoint significantly. So yes, you have SCADA systems and you have everything automated and we can see everything and that's wonderful but this is still a business where you're producing oil and gas there's still you know significant dangerous components that you have to be monitoring and you have pressure and you have pipes and you still have to have a human to actually understand this stuff and so that little bit the ability to produce just a little bit more from these wells means a lot and if we're plugging wells in the name of policy or in the name of politics which is really about getting rid of oil and gas production as opposed to safety or as opposed to that we need to do it that's different and, you know, a couple of years ago, I really wanted to I would love to buy up every stripper well in this country and be the, be the behemoth of, of stripper wells, because there's a lot of oil that I mean, and actually a ton of data as well. I mean, the amount of data and analysis, I mean, when you're looking at a new field and you're looking for an area, you always go to the old vertical wells and study them and look at the logs and look at everything. And you're looking at that data analysis and it's huge. So to understand what's going on. So you find oil where you found oil before. I mean, that's historically, that's how it works. I mean, you can look at the Western Interior Seaway in the U.S that whole strip in the middle. That's where we found oil. That's where our old, you know, vertical wells are. And that's where we find oil now. And these vertical wells, yes, they, there's some logic probably for plugging on when you have interference, especially when you're drilling, you know, horizontals, et cetera. But 
technology, the ability to shut them in, et cetera. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you can do to mitigate this. But in Colorado, in the in Denver Julesburg Basin, when we're shutting them, you know, we're plugging them, it is it is a policy driven thing. And it started several years ago to push and plug. And so you can't even when you have a discussion on, you know, these vertical wells, I mean, there's a huge agenda to, to plug them. And the the major companies like the, you know, the the major operators like the Occidentals um, and the Chevrons, et cetera, that have bought out these companies, they've went along with it to, to plug these wells. And then they're going after that new production. But you know, cumulatively, we should be asking ourselves if, if it's the right thing to be plugging these wells. And I don't I don't think the answer is yes. I think the all of the above and you need to be producing everything you possibly can. Um, and you need to be building pipelines to where you can actually move that to market. You guys know that extremely well being in North Dakota of, you know, the trials and tribulations of, of being able to get, you know, natural gas, ethane, um, and especially crude oil out of the state when you had didn't have those production volumes before. I mean, it, nothing works. Uh, energy isn't in a vacuum. There's no, nothing in this business or a, any business that is singular. It's all connected to everything else. And, and, and uh, you know, petroleum and natural gas is a huge component of that, of that it's, it, it is pivotal to the global economy, to everything that we do, but it's also super interconnected. And, you know, when Biden asks or when the administration just asks operators to produce more, just do a little more, do their part or they can do it. It's well, you do it. You can't we can't drill more wells and we can't do more in the Marcellus because we don't have a pipeline and we're about nearing capacity. And so you're not going to see operators willing to take that risk on a hope and a prayer that someday it gets built. Um, so you have to signal that stuff. And I think that that infrastructure and the ability to do this is just it's, it's really, really important. And I think we're finally starting to see on a geopolitical and global side of how important this is. Energy security is, is vital to your geopolitical security and, you know, power dynamics around the globe. And when we're giving up energy security, we are really giving up a lot um, in terms of our ability to maneuver and our ability to do stuff. And no, it doesn't solve everything. Or you're not never 100% completely energy independent, but it certainly helps uh, the ability to help out your Western neighbors, help out your Western peers. And just actually it helps for pricing, it helps helps keep, you know, molecules and barrels on the market. And it helps, uh, it helps put a lid on prices. And when you stop doing that, when Western countries stop uh, giving up oil and gas production, there's an impact to that. And we are seeing that impact right now. So, so that was a long I, rant from here. Well, that's, yeah, I know. And, and, and we can go a lot of different directions with it. I, I think there's a couple things I wanted to just kind of address in relation to the oil and gas industry. Um, one is you mentioned kind of uh, the the quality of work and some of the merit behind uh, some of the innovation and and just whether we're still there or not. And so when I look at farming back in the '70s and '80s, and what ended up happening is that you ended up with Monsanto controlling the majority, like over ninety percent of the market when it came to seeds, and you had a handful of companies that really control the, the, the egg industry, my industry. So I've survived seven recessions, nine, if you want to count the last couple of years, um, as three or four or five, depending on how many numbers you want to call, because when you start pumping $7 trillion into the marketplace, each round is a recession in my, my book. Okay. So, uh, in 2007 is the one that my company went bankrupt. And that was the one recession that I lost, but at the same, so I'm one for nine or one for seven, one for five, depending on how many recessions you want to call. But I don't feel so bad because over the next five to seven years, every newspaper in America went bankrupt. So when you look at what happened there in the eighties, the food industry got taken out into a small conglomeration small consortium of people. In the 2007 to 2010, the communication industry, which newspapers produced 90% of the original content. The internet is a reaction to what the newspapers primarily produce. The radio is a reaction to what the newspaper puts out. The television produces a little bit of original news, but television is mostly opinion and talk. So what happened was, is that newspapers who had a hundred year monopoly, newspapers had a hundred year monopoly outside of Detroit, Denver, Minneapolis, and one other, I can't remember off the top of my head because they had what's called a joint advertising agreement. 
The Denver Post and the Rocky Mountain News said, you know what, we're both going to go out of business unless we put our sales team together. And so they did. And they, based on their subscription, they kicked money and they had an agreement. But every other place had a monopoly. So the food got taken out in the 80s. The 2000s, our uh, communication really got consolidated to the internet. Because while newspapers were going out of business, Facebook, Google, LinkedIn, and Twitter all got funded by the government. So in the 80s, the government picked a handful of companies to fund. They're still around. During the 2000s, all the newspapers and communications went out of bank, went bankrupt, except for a handful. And now they're censoring people. Those same companies that were funded by the government in the early 2000s or whatever, those are the ones censoring everybody right now. So all this was funded and funded. Now I'm looking at what's going on in the oil and gas industry. And here's what I'm telling people. This is where I'm coming. When you look at Liberty Energy, who used to be Liberty Oil, they're going towards an electric frack. That's what the newspaper industry should have done. They should have got rid of the printing press instead of investing more money into a sunken cost. Energy companies, are, oil companies are starting to become more diversified quickly now because they have to. They're becoming more innovative now because they have to. Just like we had to in the media industry, we had to get rid of that printing press. That was doing us no good. But it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to keep a building around it in order to keep people running on it. It's kind of like the cafe. Get rid of that old greasy spoon cafe grill stuff. Nobody wants that anymore. You got to have three people run it all the time. So, so many businesses have sunken costs right now that they really have to reinvent. And you, you know Liberty pretty well. What they're doing with that electric frack, that's the stuff people have to start thinking about. They got to reinvent how they're doing their business. What we're doing right now is absolutely ridiculous. You're sitting there in a car. I'm sitting here in a car. You got a cowboy hat, a mic. I got a pinky in the brain shirt on. I wouldn't be caught dead in a public setting professionally like this with a pinky and a brain shirt on. But you know what? I'm on vacay. <laughs> so yeah, well, we're doing it. I'm about to. I'm about. Well, so I think a, a few things. I, I think so. I mean, Liberty Energy. I mean, formerly Liberty Oilfield Services, which only recently changed their name. I think you know, there's a lot to be said on the oilfield service sector, and we, we've talked about that before. So I'm glad you brought it up. Um, but I think it's it's there's several things happening in this business, and some of it's you know, obviously prices have risen to where people, oil and gas companies, are finally making money and and they're returning money to shareholders, and things are good there. However, you know, we have a deficit of leadership in the energy space. And that's what I spent a lot of time on the podcast talking about. I, I can't, I cannot underscore it enough into terms of how people, how serious this is in terms of when people swallow the International Energy Agency's utter and complete BS on their net zero plans by 2050, and then all the oil companies follow suit and they do it as well. <laughs> that's a problem because and they are, cities. you know, they're, contri <laughs> you know, they're contributing to this energy crisis. And so we have a deficit of leadership. And I, I think it's actually, we're seeing oil companies hire, you know, tons of environmentalists. We're seeing them get rid of completion engineers. So it's going to be very interesting to see how companies actually, you know, come out of this, especially public companies and to really Can see, you know, how they, Absolutely. So uh, the, 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 a lot of the environmentalists they're hiring, they're not even environmentalists. They're just people they know. And then they got to go train them how to be environmentalists because they're people they can trust or they have the last name of somebody they, you know, that has influence. And that actually is a is an inflationary story we're working on right now. We're calling it the invisible inflation or the incompetence inflation. And incompetence, we don't want to really bring it in the professional sense of nepotism and cronyism. That's more when the, the work staff is so bad, they just charge you two, three bucks more when you go to, you know, you get a salad and they charge you for a different salad and you're like, I don't want to fight it. So you just, you take the three buck hit and move on type thing. It's happening more and more and more. Yeah. You know what I mean? So uh, anyway, yeah, sorry, no, I go mean, on. And it's serious. Yeah. No, no, that's fine. Uh, and that's a great, that's a great little uh, tangent. But I think the, I, I think the, the 
energy space and especially the service side, it's it's complicated for people. It's hard for people. You know, we talked about this when we were talking on the phone about I, I think it's it's actually hard for people to sort of quantify it um, and qualify it because to understand oil field services, you have to deeply understand uh, the upstream. You have to understand, you know, why are companies drilling in this area? How do they perform? And what does the service company provide and how does it actually work? And, I, you know, mm-hmm. the more exposure I have on the service side, I really think it's it's probably hard for public it's a hard business. I mean, the reason the U.S. did so well, one, because of, of, of private ownership of mineral rights, but two, was because of a very nimble service sector. The reason we led shale the, led the shale revolution and turned oil and gas globally completely on its head and upturned the apple cart on production and how we think about production it is because we had a very nimble service sector that, you know, people just went off to the races and did it. And not every company made money, but, you know, you threw money at it and you, you worked around it and you had people working and, and you had people figuring out and sort of a brute force way of doing it. But that service sector also has to make money. And so the service sector often, you know, as things, you know, we decoupled, you know, sand, the service company normally would control sand and control fluids and control chemicals and everything. And it all went through the service company. And then the operator started realizing, hey, if we decouple this and we separate it out, we control those costs better. You don't have the same margins. You know, it helped on the operator side to actually survive through lower oil prices. You know, the service sector sort of took the hit. Now the service sector is saying, hey, well, we got to have those prices back. And now, I mean, if you want a frack fleet, it's pretty impossible. But I think it's fascinating that if you, I mean, these frack fleets are basically sold out because, you know, we lost a lot of you had to tell the service sector go under, obviously, during COVID and, and negative oil prices and, and that craziness and the jarring of the industry. But now when you look at horizontal well completions, and so you can look at rigs all you want, and rigs were, were nearing levels we were basically pre-COVID. So I, we're, we're back, you know, sort of at those levels. But if we're actually looking at, you know, horizontal well completions, private operators have come back. They are back to where they were, you know, pre-COVID and they are, you know, off to the races. It is only the public operators who have not returned those horizontal wells back. So that is why if you're looking at just horizontal well completions for the U.S. in total, that they haven't returned to those pre-COVID levels because the public guys haven't. And they could say, they would say now, hey, you listen to EOG on on Bernstein, uh, you know, they have conferences and various stuff they've been at that they put on their their websites and their, um, and you can listen to them and they say, yeah, we're about ready to sort of bring stuff back online. And, and, you know, the market's clearly telling us we need to add more barrels, but, you know, we couldn't get the frack fleet. We couldn't get, increase our production even if we wanted to. And that's in a way that's, that's true. It's also a bit of a convenient excuse because they had the price signals. We had the macro environment and everything saying, bring those barrels back online, you know, but they, they were constrained. I, I think really and artificially from saying, hey, we, we've got to bring our, you know, we've got to get our shareholders returns. We have to start making money. We have to put some savings in the coffers and we have to do this and we have to show that we're not going to just increase output the moment oil prices go up. So the public operators have done that, but they've also really leaned into this ESG stuff. I mean, to to a level that's not healthy and on an unprecedented level of saying, you know, we're fully committed to this ESG stuff when they don't fully understand it and they don't know where exactly where they're taking it. So I think that's a pretty big deal in terms of, you know, how far are we going to take this ESG, you know, how, how far are they going to take the ESG narrative and how far are they going to go with it? And then when are they going to start being serious about increasing output? Um, and that's the, so the public space, and that's where people, the reason it matters because that's these are public companies they have public earnings calls and the market hears them the market doesn't hear you know what all these privates are doing which is to the same degree i mean that's not getting you know on cnn and msnbc and on fox and cnbc and bloomberg and to the same degree so private companies are absolutely moving the needle and that's what's fascinating in this business is that you know two years ago big private equity firms would have said, hey, they're dead. You know, we, we won't have hundreds of little mom and pop operators in the Permian anymore because that that has just the, the evolution of the business has killed that off. And lo and behold, you know, kick these prices up and the private private money has come back in droves. And w- these operators are, are drilling and producing and making money. And as tight as everything is, and yes, it's tight. If, if you and I start an oil company tomorrow, it's going to be pretty hard for us to get a frack fleet to actually frack a well. However, that being said, we are seeing the wells being, you know, we're seeing the drills, you know, the holes being poked into the ground and we're seeing, you know, the horizontal well completions we're, we're actually seeing in the data. It's lagging a bit, but it's there. And so I think it's it's impressive to see this sort of resilience of the business. Um, but I think that that, you know, going directly to your your point on the electric frack fleet, it's it's conceptually it's a good idea. Um, it, it Mainly it's it. It's, I think it stemmed initially from, you know, fuel pricing and trying to make things more efficient, but it's really about the operators that wanted it from the ESG side, um, from the push from the ESG side. So it has to make economic sense. 
when Halliburton talked about it initially, they ixnayed it, they poo-pooed it and said, we're not doing the electric crack fleet. And all of a sudden, you know, not too long after that, they said they're doing it because they have to compete with their peers. And so the service sector is always kind of in this in this pain point where they have to do what the operators want them to do, and then they have to figure out how to make money with it. And I think that's something that there's a, there's a lag in this. And so the industry, and I talked about this with Matt Gallagher and others on the podcast, but, you know, we have to have a healthy service sector and a healthy, you know, operating sector, and they have to work together. And the gouging can't happen. I mean, you can't have the price gouging, but I don't think the service sector has really been, you know, for years has been able to sort of price gouge. And the evolution, I mean, I think if you think the service sector today is going to look this way five years from now, you're crazy. Just like, you know, five years ago, you would have had those big private equity guys saying, yeah, you won't have one and two rig companies in the Permian. And we have them back now. So I think you have to really be, you know, boots on the ground and thinking about this on a different level of saying, how is this industry going to evolve? And that ESG pressure, the investor pressure, um, the policies that help drive some of that ESG pressure with climate change executive orders and everything um, and, and tax credits and everything, that's meaningful. And so if, if Paul takes and risk and stuff shifts a little bit that can have an impact on what's happening on for these public companies which will trickle back to private equity and so it's there's a lot of moving parts here that you have to pay very very close attention to to see the evolution of this business i forgot a lot of these public companies are are not up to the you know 2017-18 numbers that they were at and is bp one of those by the way do you know Absolutely. So I think all your big, um, all your majors, not a single one of them is, is, has the level, at least the level of activity. I mean, they're trying to anchor that production back and I'd have to go back and look at BP, but nobody is drilling as many, no public company, no, most major publics are not, you know, have the CapEx there, um, or the, or is drilling as many wells. You're seeing Exxon and Chevron saying, you know, we're obviously committing more and more to the Permian, et cetera. But, you know, COVID really took that you know, the steam out of that and they, they pulled it out. And then BP and Shell and and even Exxon and Chevron to agree have put so much money toward um, toward the green, the lower carbon green stuff. And BP has spent a ton of money on wind um, and solar and, and hydrogen stuff. So yeah, they're not, BP is nowhere close uh, to where they were previous, several years ago. Well, and I saw, I've seen um, BP obviously invest a lot in their image and the the, what really, I guess, open my eyes to kind of a new a new focus on what a lot of oil and gas companies in the ESG sector is after a lot of these Roe v. Wade uh, states came out, there were companies that said they were going to pay for travel for people who wanted to do these types of, uh, you know, the policies. And I, I don't want to even get into it because we're non-political. But that's not lost on me because that's a huge deal. You know, when when you're not actively out there hitting the numbers that you've hit before and now you're adding more cost to the books, that's all I'm getting at is that when you're adding more benefits and more cost, but yet your business is not where it used to be, that, that's, a, that, that's an interesting position to be in. And I'm seeing more and more companies that are investing in image and I don't see the back end. I don't see them adding the business. So I is that I, I'm not sure if you're following me or not. I just use that one as one example. I'm sure there's other ones too. But no, that's no, ab- absolutely. And I, you're, I, I apologize because your internet's cutting out a little bit. So I'm, you're, I'm piecing some, some words together here. Um, no, I, th- I think image is huge, and and BP is a perfect example of a company that obviously had the BP oil spill, and since that, yeah. since 2010, and and Deepwater Horizon and Macondo and and this the, the big spill, you know, they have been clawing back, not just been paying billions, you know, in sort of fees and reparations and everything that they had to do, paying billions and billions for that, um, which, you know, used to t- they used to talk about that significant earnings call of how much was going to that. Now, if you listen to a BP earnings call, if you start it in the middle, you, you aren't even going to know whether it's an oil company or not. You're going to have to rewind it to the beginning to know it's actually BP talking um, because they're talking so much about renewables and everything. And so I think, I think part of it was that was certainly an image that's, that's been a crossover. They also... Um, you know, when you're studying the investment side and uh, where the stuff starts, the sort of a lot of stuff starts sort of in London and Europe, um, especially on on the environmental and the issue pressure really starts there. And then it trickles back down. Um, it get, gets back down into New York. So BP sort of led BP and Shell sort of, I would say, led that to a degree, which is interesting because and, and also very hip 
you know, there's a lot of hypocrisy there because they have so many significant investments or used to, at least in Africa and the Middle East. Um, and I mean, BP just pulled out of Russia and BP had said, hey, our Russian stuff is super green. They bragged about it in their earnings calls a lot that actually had a lower carbon footprint than all of their portfolio and most of the industry, which was just a load of crap because there's no way they could even have proper measurements on that. But they talked about it. So I think from an image standpoint, you know, BP is an example that had to work hard, pretty hard from deep water from, from the BP oil spill. And they've, you know, tried to reel that back. But the problem is even in London, I know that they have, uh, they used to, the British Museum, I mean, where, where you have um, the Rosetta Stone, um, that's where, I mean, BP used to fund exhibits and I think different events. And I know you can go there and you can see people protesting or used to be able to see protesting, you know, BP. And is this is like, this is a London cultural thing where, I mean, BP is still part of, um, you know, was at least a part of London and they had an office uh, in, they have an office in London that I've been to multiple times. And during COVID, I think for multiple reasons, they got rid of that office, obviously, because people weren't going there. Um, and so it, I, I believe they no longer have this office in London. So that's a pretty big deal when, I mean, you're, you're downsizing to degree enough to where you're getting rid of your, your headquarters, and you're getting rid of your office. And, um, I mean, the, I, I truthfully, I don't think that unless you're subsidizing this stuff massively, um, I, I don't think the return on investment, I mean, for wind and solar and hydrogen, and I mean, they get a lot of criticism within their earnings call, at least if you really listen to it and you follow on quarter by quarter basis of when people ask, you know, how much did you pay for, you know, how much did you pay for the wind, you know, the offshore wind leases in the, in the UK, you know, they won't come out and say it directly. Um, and they'll say, well, and people talk about when are the returns and the paybacks and they're, they're saying basically it's around 10 years. And it's like, you know, if you, we came out and said, Hey, we're drilling a well, but it's going to take 10 years for you to get a payoff for that. That's a really long time. And so, yes, when, um, when the economy is doing well and, and when green energy sounds really good and everybody's on board with this, you might be willing to accept a 10 year return. But I think when you have an energy crisis and you have a hundred dollars and north of a hundred dollars a barrel, um, and your country is not producing enough at home and is contributing to your inability. I mean, you know, come this fall and winter, if, if these pipelines, this Nord Stream one that's about to go on maintenance, which is the major conduit to get natural gas from Russia to Europe, they're going to put that on maintenance. And the real fears right now that's driving gas prices uh, up in, in, in Europe is that when that Putin's not going to put gas back in that pipeline when that once that pipeline goes off maintenance. And the reality is he, pro he probably is not. And you're seeing $45 in MMBTU gas prices in, in Europe right now. And they could go to 300, but the reality is they, they just may not have the gas. And so these are really serious things that, that do come back to the public space and the, even the private space. If you're producing only gas, when, when you are, all these pressures matter and they add up collectively because Europe is not producing their own natural gas because of policies and because of issues that have very, very green, aggressive agendas within their countries that have allowed their production to really decline for the last 10 years, but their consumption has been flat. And that is, um, I mean, we're talking about energy crises where they're going to be burning every bit of coal that they have. I mean, people are going crazy about bioenergy, which is wood. I mean, I can imagine in, in we're going to see um, across the UK, people burning, um, you know, peat bog and, and wood and everything. And none of that is beneficial, you know, to the environment or, you know, internal health in, in houses and things. So these are just, you know, serious knock-on effects ramifications for, you know, 10 years out that a lot of us did see, you know, people that are doing economic analysis and stuff and risk did see this, but, you know, these policymakers did not necessarily. And when these companies and these public guys um, do this, yes, at the time it, it may help, but I mean, there's a long game here. And I really, that's where I come back to like, you know, leadership for oil and gas companies is that, you know, ESG is more than just about the E and the environmental side. And it means a lot more than that. And we have to have leaders in oil and gas in these companies that are willing to say that, to say, I produce oil and gas. I do it well. I do it fairly. I do it humanely. Um, I am reducing my methane emissions. I am doing the right stuff and push me. I'll do, I'll do it better. I'll do it harder. I'll, I'll enforce the stuff, but I also know where my barrel comes from and I'm helping the world, you know, and con con contributing to a more secure environment. And that, that's ESG in and of itself. And I think we, the leadership in that space is, uh, is there's a deficit of it. I don't think we hardly have any public CEOs that are willing to, you know, be honest about what they do for a living, um, and, and be happy about it. And the people that work for them care about this business. You know, the people that are in the field and doing this really care about this business. And I think that's really sad to see CEOs who kind of demonize the industry and the earnings calls when all their people are busting their ass for their company, um, and, and, you know, producing this energy. So, um, that's my two bits. I, I think that deficit leadership is, is super serious and it does link back and contribute to everything that you were just saying. Well, the ESG stuff's interesting because the the 
we've been covering it now since 2015 and here on the crude life in fact i'm reading energy group we did uh, weekly esg updates because they're building the first refinery in the united states in the last 50 years to be built greenfield refinery it's a uh, under 50,000 barrels so they can do it at a state permit instead of the federal permit. So ESG was a big part of their their business plan. So because they're in the backyard, we ended up doing a weekly ESG update. If you're listening just from a market and risk uh, perspective in terms of, you know, um, a money side, the risk perspective is that um, if you're following I mean, you're starting to hear analysts and coverage on stocks, uh, especially for companies like Starbucks and Coca-Cola, when people will downgrade them and say, hey, because these companies are um, beholden to their employees and less to their shareholders, which is sort of how this the this, this social piece is falling out, is that, that you have to be concerned that they aren't going to be beholden to making money. Um, and I think that's where it gets really tricky for oil and gas is that, you know, your shareholders uh, have been telling you, hey, we have to we have to be pro- you have to be making money. You have to be returning money to your to your shareholders. And so that's where we saw, you know, so much of this this you know result for recovering from COVID was saying, hey, we're we're putting all this money back. We're giving it to shareholders, and we're trying to create a better position, you know, um, within the S and P five hundred, within you know, within the sector of publicly traded companies. However, um, that has also resulted in these companies leaning into what whatever the narrative is at the time, which happens to be you know the environmental stuff and ESG. And I you have to be careful with that because they have to how these companies make money, their core competency is producing oil and gas. And it works out well when oil and gas prices are really high to do a lot of this stuff. And I think the risk is, especially from ESG, is that, you know, your your share price performance is largely indicative as an oil and gas company of oil prices. So when oil prices go down, share prices are going to go down as well. And so oh, I think um, you, know, you can't throw the baby out with bathwater. But when when if oil prices were to go down to sixty tomorrow, I don't think the ESG stuff is going to matter as much. Especially, I mean, and I'm I'm talking about the E stuff here seriously. But it does matter from. Um, company performance and how these companies are evaluated, but also how we're making money. And all this matters in terms of actual energy output. And I think that's where I I mentioned it on a couple previous podcasts, or at least in presentations, but the World Benchmarking Alliance is is an entity that's talked about with whether it's Exxon's call, um, Exxon Mobil, you know their their shareholder conversations that they have, which you can listen to publicly, and you have folks that come in there um, with proposals, and they reference the World Benchmarking Alliance, which basically says that your seventy seven percent of your capex has to go to low carbon or green energy, that it cannot actually go, um, that it, this can't actually go toward um, producing oil and gas or on the ENP side. So that means only twenty three percent of your capex as a public company can go to actually producing oil and gas. And that's a pretty big deal because it has meaningful ramifications in terms of actual energy output, actually, you know, BTUs that we're producing. And that is very, very significant, you know, consequences for geopolitical dynamics um, and for the future of energy security and what's happening globally. And so I think that's just something people have to take really, really seriously is that when you're not, you know, no energy is free. It, most energy takes energy to produce. Um, and that when we're not producing it, um, it, there's dynamics to this. So the more energy that's produced, uh, the more available it is, the more freely it can flow, the more Im- obviously impacts prices, uh, but the more can like flexible, it can move around. And, you know, this might be an opportunity to sort of talk about the China piece. Um, but uh, Jason, thoughts? Hey, folks. So we're back uh, with Patrona's podcast. My apologies for hearing the the pup in the background. I think we lost Jason with the internet. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure. This is going to be part one of the Crude Life Patrona's mashup. Um, and uh, super fun to talk with Jason. We'll, be, we'll absolutely be doing it again. And we'll do, be doing part two. Uh, apologize for the internet difficulties um, in, in rural Minnesota and rural Colorado. But talk to you soon, folks. Again, it's been Tuesday. It is July 7th. Oil prices are hovering around this $100 barrel mark. And we will talk to you soon, folks. Bye.